0: Everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Comics Collective, the weekly podcast where we read and discuss a collection of comic books or a graphic novel. I'm your host, Dallas. And I'm Anne. Oh, that came in really smooth, Anne. That Did was it?
1: that was Good. nice. I was thinking about that the whole time. I was like so focused. I'm like, voice, please just carry me through. I've been for the listeners at home, I've been coughing for like four days straight. It's been awful. And I feel like I'm finally I'm finally on the verge where I'm like, I'm about to be good again. So we're fine. Everything's okay. How are you?
0: I'm good. I mean, a little bit of a peek behind the curtain for the listeners. This voice doesn't just happen for me. Okay, this is this kind of nasally register coming Mm -hmm. directly out of the schnoz. It's hard work and Mm -hmm. it begins early in the day, you know, on a podcast day. I wake up and I just start screaming very loud because I want to blow my voice out first to get sort of that low gravel Mm -hmm. before then working it back through hours of the use of a neti pot. But I don't put water in the neti pot. I put monster energy drink in the neti pot. I've never drank one, but I use it in the neti pot. And it's heated, by the way, in case you were wondering. So heated Mm -hmm. monster flowing down my nasal cavities into my throat. And that's when you start to get this sort of sing-songy fun nature that I have here. Right?
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: then finally, we floss between nose and mouth with a noodle mm-hmm. a few times and then I'm ready for the show. Cool. I just drink unicorn blood. So, you know, Attracts. you, you Attracts. do you. If I know one thing about women, it's <laughs> a lot of unicorn blood And a lot of drinking. Sometimes together, sometimes separate.
1: Usually together. Perfect, perfect. Um, God, I could use a drink. Anyways, (laughs) (laughs) what are we talking about today, Alice?
0: Today we are talking about Grant Morrison and Chaz Truog's work on Animal Man with DC and then was later folded into DC's Vertigo. So we are doing a new format here on the comics collective where someone is in charge of the episode. Mm-hmm. This is the episode that I'm in charge of. I know shocking Alexis wow. didn't pick animal man. Um, in great Alexis fashion, she has uh, bounced on the grant mm-hmm. Morrison episode. She said, I actually just herniated my interest in doing this episode. So I'm going to have to sit this one out. <laughs> and I said, damn shoddy okay
1: and i said damn she beat me to it
0: you said shit i there was like a sparkling moment where i was like am i gonna have to do a solo show and then i was like do i do voices for each of them and talk like a crazy person or do i just try to like raw dog it but then you came through and you will talk
1: yeah yeah about it. i i would have paid to see that though i i want you i want you to make puppets like the one you have of you i want one for me and lexi and i want you to do a, a video podcast whereas you mm. and the puppets on each hand and you have to have like the
0: what, what do i use to direct the third puppet it's you Oh, I am the third puppet with yeah, each of you on a hand. The,
1: we don't need the Dallas puppet because we have the Dallas.
0: I am a Muppet
1: of a man. Yeah, exactly. And you can use editing, put like little um board, borders down the screen to make it look like you're in a newsroom or something and you're shooting from different locations. It'd be perfect. It'd be that beautiful. Would be,
0: that would be really good for this audio only podcast. Um, yeah.
1: So I, I in said one case... video one, a single video one.
0: No, no. So in case you're wondering, <laughs> listener, I now have a puppet on each hand. And every response coming from Anne is me doing my best Anne impression with that puppet. Alexis's puppet, very quiet, a little bit shy, Mm -hmm. doesn't really know what it wants to say.
1: Surprise. He's actually been doing it this whole time.
0: Anne's not real. She's a bit that I created. Just like hating Mary Jane Watson. Also Mm -hmm. a bit.
1: Which is great because you know what that means? It means I get to live
0: forever forever, just like the fictional characters in Grant Morrison and Chad Truog's Animal Man. So before I get into the sort of in-depth background on Animal Man, I've I've written my five-paragraph essay, you could say, and I want to know your initial reactions to this book, kind of what the reputation you'd heard about it mm-hmm. how you felt actually reading it and now having sat with it for a day how you're feeling about it in retrospect
1: okay so animal man specifically this run is a book i've been thinking about and thinking about reading since i started comics i when i worked at the library there was um we had two sections for comics we had the ya Section which is where they put like most of the comics for some reason, whether they were specifically meant for YA people or not. They're like, this is like an all ages comic. Like this is the DC or Marvel thing. Just put it in the YA section. It goes right there. But we also had an adult comic section. That's where the Vertigo shit went. So I remember I was going through a lot of the New 52 stuff at the time and there was an Animal Man run by Jeff Lemire. And um, I forget who the artist was, but I loved it. I absolutely adore that run so much. It's so spooky. It does a lot of really cool stuff with body horror that I loved. Um, it was, it was a really fun run. So when I went back to that corner and I saw that there was an animal man in the vertigo section, I'm like, I need to check out what this is about. And I think I read specifically the issue <clears throat> with the um, coyote Jesus. And I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to give this some time. I don't think I'm ready for this um, drastic shift in tones yet. I'm not, I'm not there. And I've been thinking about it ever since. And I've heard from everyone I talked to that just they adore this run. Everyone seems to really love this run for everything that turned me off in the first place, which is so funny because that's basically the same thing I I say about Sandman 2 and why I didn't read it back then. They like how weird it is. They like how meta it gets at the end. They like the really interesting places that Grant took the character. And that was the reason I was hesitant because I had such a love for that New 52 version them like I don't want this version to either not live up or I don't want this version to make the version I already love look pale in comparison you know where I'm like I was trapped between a good book and a hard place so finally finally got around to reading it and I have to say I have some I think I have some mixed and interesting feelings about this book because none of what I thought would happen did happen I think at the end of the day I'm sitting here like that was a pretty good run doesn't change my opinion on the character or the run that I'd read before. But I'm also not sure if I completely got it, you know? So that is my initial reaction coming into this book and a a little bit coming out of it. So I will turn it back over to you to talk about how you came to this book.
0: Yeah, so um, for those of you that don't know, a few weeks ago... Grant Morrison came to New York city as part of their press tour for their novel Luda, which I'm now about two thirds of the way through still very concerned with how ludicrous will be roped into this book. I'm a little bit shocked. He hasn't appeared yet, but I do have faith in Grant's ability to somehow loop in ludicrous into the biopic of ludicrous Luda. But (laughs) while Grant was in New York, I actually had the opportunity to go and talk with them about Luda. And, you know, we went, we got some drinks and dinner. um, And then the craziest thing happened. Grant turned to me and they said, Dallas, my good old friend, Dallas, um, you haven't covered my book Animal Man yet on the Comics Collective. I am a weekly listener and I'm just really shocked that you, who I know, has a mm, sort of so-so relationship with my work Mm -hmm. haven't touched animal man yet and i said grant 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 i'll see if i can pencil you in i have a lot of important sandman to be reading and grant said don't get me started about neil gaiman and for those who don't know grant is from scotland and so at that point there were some choice words said about Neil Gaiman. Um Me and Anne, we had a conversation earlier about uh, slurs from the UK and whether or not we can say them Anne pretty firmly came down on the side of, yes, we should use them and frequently. And I was like, Anne, I, I'm not really comfortable quoting what Grant said about Neil other than uh, nepotism, Alan Moore, baby. But with all that in mind, did end up giving this little book that no one's heard of animal man a try and i was definitely okay you know um a, a lot like grant's other work i was a little uh, mm-hmm. seems a little uh, derivative of such works as uh, spongebob squarepants Holy uh, sh- the yeah. DoodleBob episode yeah.
1: <laughs> unsurprisingly <laughs> yes um- you actually have a point there.
0: I didn't see a single panel of mihoi except for maybe what the coyote wrote down could be construed as Doodle Bob language.
1: I thought that was the magic word that um, Captain Marvel has to say to turn into Captain Marvel.
0: Oh, sorry. No, you're actually thinking yeah. of Mary Marvel. Mary Marvel oh, has okay, to say yeah. mihoi And And you say she...
1: it backwards. She goes back to the fifth dimension.
0: That's correct, Um, where she hangs out with Batman's friend, Mr. Mixapidilic, who wears the little Batman outfit.
1: Oh, yeah, right. And then Batmite's the one that picks on Superman.
0: Yes, not to be confused, however, with Reed Richards, who is also from the fifth dimension, (laughs) but came through as that dimension collapsed and is now a devourer of worlds.
1: I thought he was the guy that could pee and still talk to you in the living room at the same time.
0: No, sorry. You're actually thinking of Swamp Thing.
1: Okay, cool. Never mind.
0: And continue. Okay. Yeah, now that all of that is cleared up, Animal Man by Grant Morrison is actually Grant's first work with DC Comics. So if you don't know... Alan Moore, this little funky guy from Britain, came over to American Comics and rocked their shit. He came in and was like, what if I took a plant and I made that plant have sex with a lady? And that plant having sex with a lady was about what it means to be a man. And he said it in that exact voice. And Karen Berger went, oh, boy, let's go. And in the first instance of this ever happening, let's go steal the valuable items from Britain and bring it somewhere else. And so Karen Berger went on the only good version of colonialism that's ever happened to Britain. And she set up a meeting in this little hotel where she said... Calling all Alan Moore knockoffs, come to this hotel and tell me what you have to say about comics. And so Dave McKean went and went, I paint things. And she went, excellent. Come on in. Neil Gaiman came in and said, Alan Moore thinks I'm the cutest boy who's ever lived. And then she polished his cheeks and she said, Neil, my boy, we're going to give you so much money and you're going to get to learn in a prestige format how to write a comic script. And then... That's how Black Orchid got made. And then oh, okay, uh-huh. little Scottish tramp, Grant Morrison, came in. And one of my favorite stories was in Grant's interview. They were so anxious and nervous and their accent was so thick that Karen Berger says she didn't know what Grant said the whole interview, but liked how enthusiastically they were saying it. And so gave them the job. But the older DC editors that were there, one of them took his hearing aids out and just left the room because he had given up on trying to understand the thick accent coming out of Grant Morrison.
1: Oh, yeah. Kids, speak in the accent for the job that you want, not the job you
0: have. Exactly. You want to make yourself sound like you're from a 1930s cartoon Mm -hmm. if you want to work in the funny books. All
1: about presentation.
0: But anyway, Grant, as part of their presentation to Karen Berger, who called them the day before, by the way, Mm -hmm. hey, you've been doing some really great comics over here. This little book called Zenith for 2000 AD. Would you like to do something for D.C.? And so on the train ride from Glasgow into London, Grant Morrison came up with two pitches. That first pitch was a four issue miniseries revitalizing the Silver Age character Animal Man, who had never had an ongoing comic. And the second was an original graphic novel about Batman focusing around Arkham Asylum. And so with those two pitches in hand, Grant Morrison came to Karen Berger, who, recognizing their talent and liking their body of work from the 10 years of comics they had done in Britain at that point, invited them into the American comic scene. And so Grant Morrison was then teamed up with artist Chaz Truog, who was also his first work at DC. So you have two newbies doing this book. Um, Some info about Chaz Truag, he cites Leonardo da Vinci as his biggest influence. And I feel like you can see that really well in how clear and crisp his figure work is. And particularly later in the book, as it really gets into just straight figure drawing to represent characters being pulled out of their fiction, you really start to see that influence. as far as Chaz Trugg's line work in general, I think it falls into a pretty clear Silver Age style, similar to one of Grant Morrison's favorite artists, Carmine Infantino. And I think that Silver Age aesthetic influenced a lot of what Morrison was trying to accomplish in this book. Uh, like I said, initially, this pitch was for a four issue mini series. Um, after that, though, because of the success of those four issues, which Grant constructed as a purposeful homage to an Alan Moore comic where it starts out with a bunch of chimpanzees screaming. And then at the end of issue four, it says somewhere the chimps are screaming. So like Watchmen, it creates a little circle. Uh, Grant wanted to make the characters feel like they were in real life, but Already an early detractor of Watchmen at this point, Grant Morrison wanted to focus less on how bad superheroes would make the world and instead introduce realism through giving Buddy Baker a sort of middle American feel as a man with children, a wife, and whose superheroing was kind of just a job. Um, However, beginning in issue five, Grant realized that they didn't really like making that kind of comic book. They weren't having a lot of fun with that. And so (laughs) they got weird with it, frankly. Um, (laughs) And there's an interview where Grant was asked, did DC's, did Karen Berger like where you decided to take the character after issue five? And Grant's like, I think I just had enough momentum that she didn't know how to stop me. Like she wasn't particularly excited about how trippy I was getting it, Mm -hmm. but kept selling. So I got to keep coming out. I love that one. The numbers were too strong for them to stop me. Yeah, like that's pe- the dream. People dug it. I really, I found charming in an interview. Grant Morrison said that they were completely shocked that anyone liked issue five. They were positive that that was the nail in their coffin at DC Comics, and when it was received so strongly, it really served as a gust of wind in their sails. And I think Animal Man then becomes a great example of the kind of work that Grant Morrison is going to do at DC for the rest of their career. It's a book about characters revitalizing and dusting off old concepts, pushing against the reductive takes of crises and trying to expand the universe out again while talking about our relationship with fiction. And I think I want to close out this little section of backstory and what the thing is from a, with a quote from Grant. It said, I'd been reading Watchmen and other real life superhero books, and I thought they were a dead end. I wanted to make a stance against that stuff and get back to the big, weird, imaginative stuff that said comics could do anything. With Animal Man, it's clear that I'm planting a flag in the sand, trying to suggest a way you can still be intelligent, but be wilder and more imaginative. And Ultimately, I think that this book succeeded very well in accomplishing that goal, as we see the comic get progressively wielder, weirder, wilder, and more imaginative, while endearing us more to Buddy Baker and his plights as a real-life superhero.
1: Yeah, wow, you just set the gold standard <laughs> for, for the, um, the research
0: section. That was wonderful. I had a lot of fun. I read a lot of books and interviews and chapters of books about the British invasion. It gave me a lot more uh, love for this creator that I already admire so much, Um, but also just that era of comics and really the role of Karen Berger. I don't know what format I want to do it in, or if one of my YouTube friends wants to do this, I want someone to do a deep dive on Karen Berger because that lady changed comics.
1: I want to know so much more about editors, because I'm sure there's so many out there who've shaped things, and we just never knew their names, because the writers and the artists, they get all the credit, and the editors, I just, it's so interesting.
0: It is interesting, because editorial is a dirty word in comic book circles, but you don't have one of the best long-running imprints in comic book history without a strong editorial hand from Mm -hmm. Karen Berger, so... It would definitely be something interesting to dive into. We've done these character studies. It would be fun to do an editor study. Get biographical in here. Should,
1: could be fun. We'll Should be a little fun. documentary.
0: So, Anne, do you want to work through Animal Man in sort of sequential chunks? There's... <laughs> yeah,
1: we can we can do that. I, I There is so much in this run that happens. I feel like the first four issues, they're like, that's like... The solid, the first arc, and then that fifth issue hits, and then it's just like a series of unfortunate events leading up to the crazy moments where you get like the Crime Syndicate reading copies of Justice League and being like, "Oh, we're comic books," <laughs> and it's just, I, <sighs> yeah, let's let's talk about it. It's it's gonna be a lot to break down, but speak. You were talking about that first arc and how that was the one that grants like. I'm going to try doing, you know, that typical American superhero. And I. it was the one I was reading. And I feel like I could feel Grant's disinterest in it as I was reading it. Because you. every time you pick up a book that someone tells you, like, oh, this is amazing. You're going to love this. This is world class. This is one of the best things I've ever read. It's one of the things you're like, I'm expecting this to kick ass from issue one. I'm going to expect it to get up and go. And it got up and... Felt like it lied back down dead. I'm like, this reads like any other superhero book. I think if you read the first four issues of this, you could be forgiven for thinking this is just another forgettable run from the 80s. I was not a huge fan of this first arc, but I want to know, what did you think, Dallas? Do you agree with me? Or did you see like the, the snippets of potential there?
0: I think I saw Grant's ability to character build Mm -hmm. and yes and comic books really well where realizing that animal man was a background character from strange adventures number 68 in the Mm -hmm. 60s just a throwaway character it felt very cool to me to see so quickly a world get thrown up around buddy baker and he just gets to live in it but ultimately when i revisit this run I there's a real chance I'll skip the first four issues. Like yeah. the book comes alive for me at issue five, and that's not to say that this four issue miniseries isn't interesting. But like Anne said, it's something that while that even Grant felt like was derivative then, when it had it was Alan Moore light two years after Alan Moore had created Watchmen, and so with now forty years of people trying to recreate Alan Moore's style this first four issues really doesn't sink in quite as well as the atomic bomb that is issue five.
1: Yeah, it feels like you really go off the deep end there. It's like three foot deep, and then you instantly dive straight into the Marianas Trench. It's Issue five is a 10 out of 10 comic in all the best ways.
0: So... Oh, you go.
1: Oh, no. Passing back
0: to you. I was going to say, I have done... Uh, quite a bit of research on issue five, but I want to hear from you before I kind of dive back into Dallas. Did too much research for this episode? Land?
1: No, no. I was counting on it. I was hoping you'd be the person doing too much research on this one, because I, listeners, I had a rough go of it this week. So I am perfectly happy to let Dallas do most of the work on this episode. And that's the only time you'll ever hear me admit that. But this week, I'm more than happy that Dallas is as smart as he is. That fifth issue. The one that scared me away to begin with is the one I go back and I'm like, this is, this is the shit I read comics for. This is someone saying, what is the craziest thing I can imagine? And it's making Wiley e. Coyote a Christ metaphor and throwing him into the DC universe and making something so horrific and darkly comedic at the same time and exploring that crazy what if where it's like, the, the idea must have come to him and like come to come to them in like a fever dream or something, you know, it's, I don't know how this happens, where it comes from, but I have a feeling that you do.
0: So if listener at home, I would really love if you pulled up this comic book cover, at least I'm going to talk a little bit about the comic in general, but just looking at that cover of animal Man, Mm -hmm. splayed out on the road in a crucifixion pose, it's, really jarring imagery for a Western Christian audience in America in the 1980s. It's Grant Morrison looking them in the eyes and saying, I am comparing something as low as comic books to your most sacred texts. I'm saying this low art is going to be like your high art. And then within the pages of that comic book, you have that same juxtaposition again, where crafty the stand in for Wiley e. Coyote is seen as a lower version of art than the comic books. And he is brought up into the comic books world to tell an allegory for what's about to happen in the comic, creating this sort of two mirrors back to back looking into infinity cross-section with this comic book where it says, Crafty is here to teach Animal Man about Animal Man's nature. Animal Man is here to teach you about your nature as well. And I think the use of Wiley e. Coyote is so interesting because it's a character who is abused for mm-hmm. the entertainment of the viewer. And it's setting up an expectation that for the next 21 issues, Animal Man is going to be abused. And again, drawing on that Christological imagery, this is Animal Man coming into his Passion Week. This is him standing at the front of that week that leads to the cross that is shown to be the salvation of mankind within Christian circles. And so animal man going to go through it. But the idea here is that that is weirdly just for the entertainment of the reader, but also it can be salvific in nature, just like Mm -hmm. how Wiley or crafty saves his people. Um, Something very interesting though, that I, found out about this is that it is an homage to wb Yeats's poem second coming hmm. and so i have the second the last stanza of that book or of that poem where the illusions fall in so if i can read that please it says surely some revelation is at hand surely the second coming is at hand the second coming Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in the sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun, is moving its slow thighs while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds the darkness drops again. But now I know that 20 centuries of stories of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle and what rough beast it's hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. So you have this beast in the opening pages of this comic book being resurrected from this mass as birds are circling around it in the desert. And it begins to slump out of the panel away from the events of this. Again, giving a subtle nod to Yeats's surmising about some some hideous beast that could be mistaken for a second coming initially, but in reality is something much more troubling. And I thought drawing on that imagery to talk about this as a sort of perverted mirror of Christological imagery, again, was very clever, and I liked it a lot.
1: Yep, I was right. You you had it down. The thing I was thinking about is I think the reason that going back and looking at this run as a whole that those first four issues feel even more disjointed is that those four don't play into the main message of this run at all. This issue feels more like the proper number one because it sets up so perfectly everything that that final arc is about about the nature of comics and entertainment and about the pain and suffering of fictional characters for our entertainment and what that tells us about us as people and our experiences in the real world. It's it's crazy that it's just like <laughs> Grant wrote their own little prologue that's like, just to get, I'm going to bait all you you simpletons in here. It's like, you hear? Okay, now we're going to actually start the comic. And then it's like someone tells you we're going to watch Iron Man tonight, and then halfway through, they switch it over to, like, Wes Craven's new nightmare, and they're like, now we're rolling. Now we're <laughs> going with this crazy meta shit that's going to rock your socks
0: off. That rules. Um, what are your thoughts about the last two panels where you can see the artist's hand imposing on the image? I think it's... In and of itself, just in the the
1: issue itself, it reads as a powerful metaphor and definitely makes me think about like the hand of God and fate and stuff like that. But then once I'd finished the run and I realized where the where everything was going and talking about how creators, artists and writers played their role as, you know, beings who controlled everything that these characters were doing, it just resonated even more with um, those themes that we'll get to in a little bit but it's just like I said earlier that first tantalizing little tease at what's to
0: come later in the story absolutely and so dear viewer for viewer are they viewers I think there might be more than one there might be two no I
1: just mean they can't see
0: us so are they oh, lis- are they listeners, are listeners. They, I guess are they so. viewers
1: if they're staring at the phone
0: everyone look at your phone right now okay now they're viewers right. perceive me Perceive me, please. I'm shouting into the void. I have nothing important to say, but I want to be acknowledged as existing. Um, Anne is a biologist, everyone. She knows all the fun facts about all the animals. And so we are going to be doing a little bit of a popcorn round here, where throughout the episode, I am just going to, without any warning, turn it over to Anne's animal corner. And first we find Anne just butt deep in the Amazon, the water just splashing against her cheeks, and she has information to you. So now we're going to turn to the Creaking Jungle, and what animal fact do you have uh, for us?
1: <laughs> well, crikey. Gone through Animal Man, he takes the powers of a lot of different animals, and there's that one moment in the first four issues that I thought was really cool, where he takes the power of a worm to regrow his arm, which, you know, is actually factual. Worms can regenerate and form new um not appendages, just like new halves to themselves if they are split. Um, I will tell you, though, it's not going to happen in about five minutes. It's going to take about eight days, but the worm can grow a whole new half. And I'm kind of interested because it does it on both ends. So wherever Buddy's arm went, there should be another Buddy Baker rolling around, growing out of that arm. So there should be two of him now. And yeah, that's, that's how that works. Biological fact number one.
0: Ba-boom. Thank you so much. Did you all see... Oh, again, sorry. Not viewers. (laughs) Not viewers. You did not see the piranha that were creeping in on Anne's legs. Uh, That pink dolphin, while cute, is somewhat concerning. I am concerned. There is a history of them being quite vicious, really getting into some some Alan Moore behavior. I'm honestly more concerned
1: you can see it. The
0: pollution is supposed to be so bad. I just... Listen, I have a sharp eye. That's what these glasses are for. But again, sorry, not viewers, not viewers, just listeners. So you didn't see all that. But issue five, and you said it sets up the themes for the larger book. So maybe rolling a little bit into this larger narrative, how do you feel like issue five sets up the rest of the book?
1: I think it sets us up to expect that this is going to tackle issues that are larger than Animal Man and that are larger than the scope of the DC universe. And I think the final page, going back to that last point, if I could have said it more eloquently, I think that's what that sets up really, really well. And even the cover of this sets it up really, really well. Just, it's a visual, you know, besides all the the biblical allegories and all that, that that image calls to mind, just the fact that it's very deconstructive on the cover makes you instantly realize that they're going to be talking about the nature of comics and creating comics as a whole. And... It's interesting to read it as a binge versus how it must have been as a long read because like two years passed between when this happened and when Grant Morrison actually finished their run on this whole thing. So trying to keep that fresh in your mind that whole time must have been not as easy, but what do I know?
0: It's very interesting because... There's a concentrated focus from Grant in this book to make every issue after issue 14, for the most part, there is one exception to this rule, a one-shot, where it's a one-and-done adventure where Animal Man comes in and saves the day. Mm -hmm. And there are seeds sown throughout those adventures, though, that will bear the fruit of the finale. So you can see a lot of intentionality for where this book wants to go, but there's a desire to be accessible to anyone picking up an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that is interesting, though, is that Grant voiced a concern that this was becoming the animal cruelty spotlight of the month. Where there, in the middle, there's a stretch where each issue kind of just feels like it's a different take on Animal Man, saying this version of animal cruelty is bad. I'm going to stop it, and then moving on to the next one and being like, "This is bad. I want to stop it," and so. There seems to be some tugging forces in Animal Man as it goes on that ends up creating something really beautiful. But you have Grant wanting to talk about animal rights, something that they held dear to them, wants to talk and have a conversation about Crisis on Infinite Earths and whether or not it was a good thing for DC Comics. Mm-hmm. And then lastly, how art impacts us both as creators and consumers of it. And I think that wrestling match throughout the rest of Animal Man yields some really interesting results.
1: I completely agree. <clears throat> especially on the fact that once we hit issue 14, I feel like without knowing where this was going at all, because it's my first read through, once I hit issue 14 and I started seeing those connective threads leading us in a single direction, the book picked up for me so, so much. Because I loved issue five. I thought issue six was okay. I really thought issue seven was fun. But then after that, the the one shots after, and especially the Vixen arc... It, which I expected to love because I love Vixen, just felt very forgettable to me. Every time Buana Beast was around, I'm just like, you know what? I'm okay if I just skip this part. I'm okay if I don't remember Buana
0: Beast. I agree. Also, I don't know where the British invasion got this phrase, but if any of them uses the phrase the call of the jungle drums ever again, Mm -hmm. about a black character i'm gonna lose my marbles yeah grant you've been warned we talked about this over dinner grant i confronted you it got a little messy (laughs) but ultimately i think we ended on a good place um i don't know i did i didn't love when they went to africa either i liked the alien backstory but Mm -hmm. beyond that it was not great
1: i want to go back and reread the alien backstory because i think the that's the only part of me that the, the Lamire run still held its its little fingers in me for and didn't let me fully immerse myself in it. Because just, I know you haven't read it yet, but spoilers for that run, for the sake of the the narrative that he tried to build in that, because he tried to connect Animal Man to the green, so he made Animal Man connected to the red... Long story short, the Red's like, hey, so we kind of faked the aliens because we didn't know how to explain to you that we existed. So we just like, hey, you like aliens. Let's make that a thing. I think it's the, the probably the dumbest part about that run. But it gave me the impression it's like the, the aliens are dumb. I don't like the aliens. So I was kind of reading it like my arms crossed and like stupid orange aliens. I don't know what your purpose is and I don't like you. And I don't, And later books tell me you're not real so I don't have to care. So ha, huh. ha. And that was, yeah.
0: I find the aliens so interesting because the creation of this book predates Grant's own experience in Kathmandu that they've talked about, where <laughs> they were visited by higher dimensional beings who broke down the nature of what they were as a third dimensional being to the visitors who were higher dimensional beings and showed them the meaning of life and then left them sitting on their ass in Kathmandu going. Oh, boy, that's a lot to parse. And so it's very interesting that Animal Man seems to be about a higher dimensional being pulling up a lower dimensional being and saying, this is what you are. And I think the aliens serve that role in Buddy's story of sort of pulling him up, showing him the curtains all around. And there's that famous panel where Buddy turns around and says, I can see you. And I just I found it very interesting. that This book predates that experience of Grant's because, you it really feels like life imitating art mm-hmm.
1: it's it's crazy you mentioned that i completely forgot about that but i need to be more vigilant about stuff like that because writers do that so often it's you know it's right what you know not the other way around so i'm every time a writer does something weird i gotta be like what happened in your life that made this so important to you were you also visited by Katmandu aliens please tell me in the please comment below
0: Yes, hi. Over in the chat, if you could let us, have you been visited by Katmandu Aliens? Um, I personally have not, but... I have not yet. So far, no Katmandu Aliens. They might take us up halfway through this podcast. If the audio just cuts out, I do hope you will continue to listen to the end, because mm-hmm. I like ad revenue, but... If,
1: if it cuts out, we can just put an ad right there.
0: That's a really good idea, except we yeah. will be with the higher dimensional beings. Do you think they'll I- let me edit the podcast from the higher dimension?
1: I thought they were gonna bring us back I thought that's what they 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 bring us up for a little bit then they realize we smell and then they're like okay go back (laughs) go away
0: so so true they're like did one of you didn't wash your ass I'm not saying it was the straight white man but you all have a history of that and I'll be like damn it
1: it's the equivalent of being out on the trail and you see a cool lizard you're gonna pick it up you're gonna show it to your kids and then you're gonna put it back because what else are you gonna do with it you're not gonna take that thing home
0: That's true, unless you're me as a child who brought home a horned lizard, which I always knew as a horny toad as a kid, Mm -hmm. which is a funny name in hindsight. (laughs) But me and the horny toad, we were friends until it had to go live outside because I was too scared to feed it crickets because crickets gave me the willies.
1: How often did you get sprayed by eye blood?
0: Never once did that happen to me. awesome. Listen, I am peaceful, unlike our correspondent out in the field, Anne Crocodile Dundee Banana Man, who... Where is she? Oh, she's in the Australian Outback riding in a kangaroo's pouch. That's a tall kangaroo. Anne is not a short lady. But, (laughs) turning over now to Joey Banana Man. Um, Anne, what do you have to say for us for animal facts?
1: It is a tall kangaroo and it has taken me in. And it's actually bigger than you might think. I have a full... 42-inch TV in here, my bed, a couch, and at least 50 guests. It's a party down here. That is a spacious (laughs) Kangussie. You know what else has a lot of people showing up for the party? bacteria but you know what isn't part of the animal kingdom fucking bacteria so the fact that animal man's like i just copied bacteria i'm like fucking no you didn't that's in in this comic full of existential meta bullshit that's the that's the moment i drew the line when animal man copied himself to get out of that prison and he's like bacteria baby no that's not how that works can you copy fungus too can you copy plants forget swamp thing we have animal man he can copy a fucking rose if he wants to sorry that that's my only bitter animal fact for the day Just because it Mm. wasn't.
0: Mm. Anyways, I'm going
1: back in the pouch.
0: Yes, hello. Back in the studio. All right, she, how was weirdly off putting seeing her head shrink back into the pouch? (laughs) It sort of looked like the mask inspirited away after the creature had gorged itself. That's how her face was framed in the kangaroo's pouch hole. Mm -hmm. But again, that's how that works. Listeners, not viewers. So that's why I had to paint that word picture for you.
1: Mm -hmm. Do you know when kangaroos are born, they have to crawl their way? from the mother's um, vaginal canal up into the pouch. And they're so tiny. They look like little fetuses still.
0: Can you imagine your first job is to is go to rock climb? climbing? <laughs> yeah. Every other animal just <laughs> falls onto the ground and kangaroos are like, all right, come on, mate. croiky. this has to climb up into
1: at- its home. Hey, at least you're not a dolphin and you're born underwater. And your first activity is
0: sprint, sprint for air. I mean, speak for yourself. My plan is to have an at-home birth in a bathtub and never let it out of the water, thus raising Namor the Aqua Baby. Okay, side note, my wife wants to name our first daughter James, and I told her I'm not naming a daughter Jim. That is a terrible name. So, listeners, sound off in the comments. Is James how a stupid to, name for a daughter? The answer is yes. How to start a fight
1: 101. I didn't, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying anything. I'm not in the middle of this.
0: I, you you don't have to
1: nickname her Jim. You can nickname her
0: Jamie. I'm not looking her in the eyes and being like, what's up, Jimbo? <laughs> How's Batman? <laughs> you got a nice nightlight with a bat on it? James Gordon? Taylor? Sorry. No. It's a no. It's a firm no. I'm pretty flexible about a lot of things, and that one is a no for me. No Jimbo Taylor. <laughs> um, Before we move into the before we move into the final arc of this comic book, where I think we can have our big conversations about the meta nature of this, the conversation about continuity and the multiverse, which I feel like can be pretty meaty. I did want to touch on issue seven, which I felt like is a really great example of how this is a love letter to the comic book medium. Mm -hmm. So in issue seven, we are introduced to a character who not by accident, has a big old red hood on top of his head because this is Grant Morrison's big taking the task of Watchmen. This comic opens up with a paneled grid that starting blank introduces blood, and then instead of zooming out like the opening of Watchmen, we zoom in more and more and more until we see a character who is wearing a big old red hood. And this comic, unlike Watchmen, which tended to be about how our heroes in the real world would be just as bad as we are. This is not me saying the Watchmen is bad. I think Watchmen is a great comic book, Mm -hmm. but this comic book says even supervillains are a little bit silly. Even supervillains are kind of good guys. And like, there's no real like evil, wicked things going on in this world which is in direct opposition to Watchmen. But within this comic book that is a taking a task of Watchmen, Grant also realizes that one of the major points of Watchmen was to serve as an example of comic craft at its highest point. And so we get to a point where the supervillain has said that he wishes that he had been gifted the power of flight or something useful so he could have been a good guy but having been given the power to just kill people by touching them he didn't have a lot of opportunities to be anything but a bad guy so mm-hmm. he kind of just became a bad guy and so animal man leaves him and then on page 19 of issue 17 we get this moment where our our protagonist of this issue he decides to jump from the building that he's standing on and says i can do it i can fly i can and then before we turn the page and i talk about why this issue rules so much. I want to talk a little bit about gutter space in comic books. Mm -hmm. And so when you break down a comic book into its many parts, the general structure are panels on a white background and that white background leaves, leaves space between those panels in which we assume time has passed. So if you have one panel of someone sitting and then the next one of them standing, you assume in that white gutter space, the action of standing up happened. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, the biggest asks of comic books is that you are going to accept that part of the story happened where you couldn't see it. And so understanding that idea, when you turn the page After the man jumps and says, I can do it. I can fly. I can. On page 20, there is just the character splayed out like he's flying on a blank white page. Mm -hmm. And so he is in the gutter space of this action. And so there is no time frame on how how long he is flying. He could be falling very rapidly, flying for only seconds, or he could be there stuck in perpetuity, actually flying like he said that he wanted to. And if you take Animal Man seriously, this comic book about how these comics represent just as real of a world as we have, this character on this page is flying for as long as Animal Man is in print. Mm
1: -hmm. And I
0: think that's a really cool comment on how we can use comic books, the craft of comic books, and then again, what Morrison wanted to talk about with this book and the relationship between us and our comics. And then the comic ends really great on page 21 with again an inverse of Watchmen where we zoom down the building until we get to the dead person on the ground with the paint splatter or the blood splatter. And so framed really well, there is an epilogue, but this comic book takes to task in the seventh issue. This is the seventh issue that Grant Morrison has published in America. And they're already like, here's my thoughts on Watchmen. They're different. And here's an equally well-crafted comic book. And I think that's pretty baller, honestly. Um, That's my corner about issue seven.
1: <laughs> I'm surprised it took seven issues for them to start throwing shade. But you know what? It's it's fair. I get it. That's I have literally nothing to add. That was fucking
0: beautiful. So, back in the bayou this time, we have Animal Fact Anne. She's in a small skim boat, a bowl of jambalaya in the hand, but what is that? Hmm. Is that Hmm? an alligator behind her coming up to get the jambalaya out of her hand? Anyway, Anne, in the bayou, please, what is another Animal Fact?
1: Actually, Dallas, that's an American crocodile. They're not nearly as common as the American alligator, but they are a thing that exists. You can tell the difference by the way the heads are shaped and the teeth in their mouth and whether or not you can see up and down teeth or just down teeth. But that's not important right now. I'm just happy to be on a boat because being in the Amazon really sucks. You know, there's a fish in the Amazon called the kandiru that will swim up your urethra and stick itself there with spikes. It sucks. But that's not my animal fact. I'm eating jambalaya and it has shrimp in it. And you know, it's really cool. Animal Man uses the powers of a pistol shrimp at one point in this book. To like I don't what he's like concusses like an entire room full of people. And he's like, yeah, cause pistol shrimp do little shockwave thing. It's actually a bit more violent than he describes it. Um, um Buddy Baker had a, had it wrong. Pistol shrimps do shoot air bubbles, but they shoot little bullet sized air bubbles. At about 100 kilometers per hour under the speed of water, with a sound louder than 218 decibels, which, by the way, is louder than an actual gunshot. Um, it's funny because when that bubble pops, when it hits its target, it reaches a temperature over 8,000 degrees Fahrenheit.
0: What that the is, hell?
1: Yeah, um, <laughs> it, it happens so fast that it actually causes a cavitation bubble. Where it's just like for a moment in time, there is nothing in that space. It's a little vacuum.
0: Pistol How are shrimp, they not the dominant creature on the planet? How have we not been taken out because, by the pistol shrimp? Because
1: it's such a small area. Pistol shrimp are tiny. They're like the they're smaller than you think. We actually used to have one in um my lab class back in college. They were and so cool.
0: It didn't escape and be like, I'm the captain now. When you
1: have mantis shrimp or pistol shrimp in captivity, you have to have really thick glass. That is crazy. They've been known to break aquariums before. <laughs> um, And yeah, this, <laughs> the craziest thing about it is that um, this is one of the moments that science likes to learn from the world around us. Scientists have actually used the mechanism by studying this shrimp and the mechanism of what makes its claw work because it has a single big claw that snaps shut, and that's what makes the bubble. By studying that mechanism, we've been able to replicate it, and it's been used in the process to make underwater
0: plasma. That's the coolest shit in the world. Yeah. It makes me really sad seeing that American crocodile climbing up on the back of your boat. But I do hope that oh, Bayou, Sammy, Bayou Sammy up there in the front can save you in his cut-off <laughs> jean shorts. Because it's okay. We're gonna need you back for at least one more animal fact this episode. I have, good, good wait, I've, I've three more. But did We've you know? You hold crocodiles.
1: you hold a crocodile's mouth shut. It literally can't open it because its muscles to open its mouth are so much weaker than the muscles to shut its mouth.
0: Damn, I'm so much stronger than a crocodile. In one direction, all directions. <laughs> I'm incredibly strong. Anyways, back to you. So, Anne, you are the DC continuity nerd. You Mm -hmm. are, some have used the word geek, Dweebo. Yeah,
1: I've said those things Yeah,
0: Dorkzilla. But I am not, many people think of me as like cool and suave and Mm -hmm. disinterested in DC continuity, which is the sexy option. But could you talk a little bit about in 19, in the late 80s, Grant Morrison already pulling back against Crisis on Infinite Earths. Maybe explain what Crisis on Infinite Earths is. This reintroduction of the multiverse through the lens mm-hmm. of our boy Psycho Pirate. Just uh, let the people know about those funny books you like okay. so much.
1: <laughs> so the history of DC Comics continuity gets really, really funky. And that's the reason why Crisis on Infinite Earth exists. Because when DC Comics started as a publisher, <clears throat> they started chugging out some really popular characters, names of which you will know. You know Superman, you know Wonder Woman, you know Green Lantern, you know Flash. But what you don't know is when two of those characters started, they were different characters than the ones you probably know today. Flash back then was Jay Garrick, who's the fashionable old speedster who wears the the Mercury hat and has the wings on his boots. I love him very dearly. And the Green Lantern at the time was Alan Scott, a not-space cop who got his powers from the magic of Earth, which is really, really cool. His vulnerability was wood. Crazy.
0: And he's Um, gay, so I don't know how that works.
1: (laughs) He wasn't back then, because, you know, gays weren't invented until the 90s. Anyways, um, (laughs) they had this issue where at one point they wanted to reinvent some of these characters, like Green Lantern and Flash. So they did. They brought in Barry Allen as the Silver Age Flash, and they brought in Hal Jordan as the Silver Age Green Lantern. And their answer to how can we have two Flashes and two Green Lanterns is what if we just had two Earths? So they did the thing where they're like, okay, well, we have um, Superman, Wonder Woman, Hal Jordan, and Barry Allen, since they're what's hot right now. They're over here on um, Earth One with that funky little Batman guy. But you know what? Batman, Superman, they're pretty popular too. We're going to put them on Earth too. We we want two of those guys. And um, Alan Scott, Jay Garrick, you're kind of old-fashioned. You can go on Earth too as well. So we're going to keep you, you know, pretty separate. But you know what? We we, we love you all. We'll we'll say we love you all. But we're only going to give books to, like, these guys. And then DC's like, that's kind of a nifty trick there. What if we kept doing that for all our properties? And we can just say that these other characters, like, um, or like, um... I can't think of any of the other pre's like Jonah Hex. What if they were all just characters who existed in different earths? And that way we can justify them all existing in this one big narrative, but not having to interweave with each other at all ever. It's like that, that would keep things a lot simpler. Right. And they're like, yeah, it would. Until the decades started piling on and they realized we have a lot of characters and a lot of earths and no one really knows where anything fits right now because some people remember stories where superman did this but it's not canon on earth 1 that's only canon on earth 2 so how do we how do we simplify this and dc's like so you remember that time we had the jsa from earth 2 meet the justice league from earth 1 um yeah what if we did that but for all the earths earths at the same time and then fuse them into one earth so we don't have to worry about all this nonsense ever again that's gotten way too big for us to handle And that's how Crisis on Infinite Earths came to be. It's one event that was meant to simplify DC's catalog of characters into one easy to follow universe, quote unquote. And at the time, that's what they imagined it would be. But then the event became really, really big, and they're like, "So how often can we do this shit?" And so um, the like five year crisis cycle began. Even though I believe originally it was um, proposed, it's like, if we do this every 15 years to clean house, it should be okay. But then DC's like, but we like money. So what about every two years? <laughs> and that's how the crisis came to be. And it became a back and forth juggling cycle of, is there an infinite multiverse? Is there a limited multiverse? Or is there no multiverse? And it's been trying to keep things straight ever since that's caused everyone else the biggest headache in the world.
0: So do you agree with the text of Animal Man that comics are more fun with the big wacky multiverse and you don't really need to understand it all? Or do you like the end result of Crisis on Infinite Earths, at least in concept of a more unified continuity that you can follow without having to hand wave?
1: See, I'm in the... I'm in the field where there's like both. I like the wacky aspects of the multiverse. I like the wacky aspects of the Grant Morrison multiverse because they really, really have bump with it. Multiversity is one of those books that's just amazing to read through because I could read a Grant Morrison, like, um, encyclopedia of a thousand DC Earths. Just everything that their mind can possibly come up with. I want every scenario, every alternate hero, give me it all. Because it's so, so cool Um, I'm hoping that that multiversity line that started with, um, Teen Justice this year really takes off and get to see more of that. But also, I'm the same person who's like, I like all my toys in the same toy box. And I like it when my JSA acts as the older mentors, the JLA. I like it when they're actually doing their stuff together. I love it when Jay Garrick comes in to save, um, Wally West's kids and act like he's their grandpa because I really like those familial bonds from the aspect of, like, character and lineage, I think the only time I prefer the multiverse stuff is when DC Editorial really starts to piss me off and starts to tell me that things don't matter. I think we get into this a little bit at the end of the story, but DC Editorial really feels like it's the main villain of the DC Universe, forever and always, because they're the ones always taking away or giving... All the most random nonsensical things.
0: Hmm. Unless it's Karen Berger, right?
1: Unless it's Karen Berger.
0: Who is neat.
1: (laughs) Who is neat. Good. Good. I'm not being held against my will. (laughs) Uh,
0: If they were viewers, (laughs) they could see you holding up the sign that said, help me. But they are (laughs) sadly just listeners. Sadly. So I really dug the end of this book. Mm hmm. Yeah, yeah. I kind of want people to experience it. If you have somehow dodged how Animal Man ends, you should stop. I'm giving you permission to stop listening here. Assume that this podcast continues just as charming and as insightful as it has been. But I'm really I'm giving you an out here. If you have not read Animal Man, hop off because we're going to talk about the end and the end is. Really fun. And I wish I knew what the end was before reading this. I wish I hadn't because I feel like it would have blown my mind. So. Bye, bitches. Okay. So anyway. <laughs> and Grant yeah. Morrison's in this comic. Yeah. <laughs> says, howdy, I'm here. It says, hello.
1: Hello. <laughs> I have I hair could've... still. If you would have told me that Grant Morrison shows up in one of their own works, I would have. I would have guessed Doom Patrol. I would have always guessed Doom Patrol. Just, it feels like that's a Doom Patrol thing. But no, it's just, it's Animal Man.
0: Uh, I mean, they do show up in Doom Patrol. They're just named Jane, um, in case you are wondering. <laughs> but <laughs> in a much more literal sense, Grant Morrison.
1: You do not get more literal than this comic, unless you're talking about that like crossover book that just happened not too long ago.
0: Yeah, sometimes people are like, I can do what Grant Morrison does. And then they can never do it, ever. No one has ever pulled it off. Not a zilch. Unless, even then, no. I'm not even going to say it. I'm not going to say it. I, I kind of want to know what you said. You need to type
1: it in chat what you were about to say. But anyway, continue with your, your soliloquy. Talk about, what was it like to see them with hair? It was weird. I was <laughs> like, you're bald.
0: You're bal- <laughs> bald. Bald. Bald <laughs> my eyes i I thought this worked really well i I'm of two minds. I felt like it was going to be a bigger deal in the book. then it ended up hitting me like I felt like it was supposed to be like oh, 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 kind of moment, and it <laughs> felt weirdly quiet just as this conversation, basically with Grant and the reader about what it has felt like to be a professional comic book writer for the last two years over the run mm-hmm. of animal man. it felt a lot more intimate and less metaphysical than I think. Cause a lot of people, they're like some of the greatest meta moments in comics. And they cite the page of buddy turning and seeing the reader and like, I can see you, which was great. A really iconic oh, yeah. image. But then they also talk about like Grant Morrison being in their own book. And I was like, I don't know. It felt more intimate than bombastic to me mm-hmm. for Grant to be in this book. After everything
1: that happened in a very explosive climax of getting close to crisis level proportions, where um, I forget what his name is. Why did I forget? Psycho Pirate. Thank you so much. I just kept thinking Mirror Master. I'm like, that wasn't he's he's the other guy. (laughs) Um, Psycho Pirate's literally vomiting up. Comics and characters that he forgot about Like he's me trying to Appease people on Twitter On my Twitter timeline like hey remember Lorna Marquez um, Gosh
0: The answer is the no girl- I don't
1: And after Buddy it had such a It's because you haven't read good Aquaman comics And after Buddy it had such a violent And um, dark character Turn to have this moment where Everything just quits for a second And Grant's like let's talk about it Tell me how you're feeling. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I told you to tell me how you're feeling. <laughs> and it's it's weird because you're like waiting for that character arc to resolve. But at the same time, it feels like that character arc has been suspended for the sake of what's happening in that meta bit. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, i I actually, I feel like it's one of my favorite examples of a writer putting all their toys back in the toy box. Mm -hmm. I think something that I've always liked about Dan Slott's work, I know many of you just left, but (laughs) I really like that Dan Slott takes where the character was and then takes them on this big, crazy arc and then always leaves them back where they started so that the mm-hmm. next writer can just pick it up and run with it. And I know for a lot of people that feels really frustrating, like, oh, there's no forward momentum in these comics. But I think it ends up creating a really beautiful single unit that has a beginning, middle, and end. And so I actually really, I felt the love that Grant had for Animal Man when they placed Buddy back on the couch and gave them back his family. You know, I, it felt like a genuine... yeah thing to buddy like that to me was the most metaphysical part of this i was like that really does feel like you just did a kind thing for someone and i know this character is fictional i know their deaths were fictional and didn't really happen but like it feels real to me right now and so like Mm -hmm. i really feel like you're being kind to buddy baker and that endears me to you
1: i think that's the craziest thing about it because even though it's a fictional character the way that grant approaches talking about the meta nature of comics in this is They didn't bring comics to us. They brought the real world to comics, putting themselves in the comic, inserting that aspect of real world into this fictional text really solidifies. I'm trying to think it's it's such a big concept. I can't think of all the like right words for it. It's what makes it it's what makes it work. You can't bring a character like I okay. I figured it out in the animated Spider-Man show from the 90s, there's a moment at the end where Spider-Man and Stan Lee come to the real world. And Stan Lee's like, look, you're a character in all my books. And Spider-Man's like, wow, ain't that neat? I'm going to go back to my world now. And he goes back and he lives out his life as Spider-Man. This isn't that. This is the writer literally inserting themselves into the story and being like, listen, I'm God here. Everything about this conversation, I control. And you can't do anything about that. But that's the really interesting thing about this is that you exist for everyone's entertainment, sure. But as long as they're viewing you, you exist. You live. You survive. Your stories bring people joy. People get to meet you. People get to experience you. People get to live with you. Because these characters, every time we read them, they live. And that was one of my favorite lines in the whole the whole series because it's so freaking true. There will be people discovering characters that they love, From comics, from now until the moment that they stop existing. And that's incredible. And it reminds you that these characters play a part in your life. And it's fun to think that you play a part in their lives too.
0: I often espouse the quality of creator-owned comics that have definitive ends. That feel Mm -hmm. like complete stories that don't have to be an ongoing narrative. But there's a reason that I'm never going to walk fully away from Big Two comic books, because there is something so magical about coming and just taking a stroll through this world that was here long before you and will be here long after you. Mm -hmm. Grant Morrison talks a little bit about their approach to comic book storytelling as trying to create a real enough world to those people that they then begin to exist on their own within the page. And I feel like that happens in Animal Man, where it feels like Buddy Baker is someone who really has a family, someone who really has these adventures, really learns these big truths about himself, but then ultimately is just placed back to continue having adventures in that world. Because his most important role is to be there for us when we come back. You know, Buddy Baker's job is to be there being a superhero when we come back to read about him. And I think Mm -hmm. that this book is special to so many people because it so concisely puts that love that Grant Morrison has for these comic books so well. And it makes you leave understanding more why you love these comic books.
1: I like that. I have a question for you that's been been bugging me since I read this, and I want to hear what you think about it. Because okay. I'm reading this book and I'm getting all the messages at the end. And I'm like, this is really, really big. This is really interesting. But it's one of those things where it's like, I feel like in the context of this world, this is something that could have been told just about any character. You can make just about any character have these meta moments. So what I wanted to ask you is, why do you think that this had to be Animal Man? Do you think it could have worked with anyone else? Or do you think it had to be Buddy Baker?
0: I think that this was a story that Grant decided they wanted to tell and they just happened to be writing the Animal Man comic at that time. Um, and I think that it honestly probably would have ended up being a Doom Patrol story if the seeds hadn't already been, been sown before Doom Patrol was right. Grant's book. So I fully think that this is just a story that exists here because of who was writing it at what time they were writing it. And there's a very real... Thing at this point in Grant's career. Where this might be the only comic they ever write. So if they might as well say their story. That they're going to be saying for the next 40 years. Because they don't know. That they have 40 years ahead of them. Mm-hmm. So I I don't think it was particularly special to Animal Man.
1: That's about what I was thinking too. I think it definitely works better that Animal Man is. Or at least was at the time. He's probably like C-list now. At the time he was definitely F-list. But
0: F for phytoplankton. I know that doesn't start with an F. <laughs> I'm
1: gonna scream.
0: Um I do I hear that screaming I was, yeah, from it's, Antarctica? It's com- yeah, where you know the penguins are. Where the penguins, the penguins. <laughs> the peng- there, as Benedict Cumberbatch says, the penguins. The peng- there there is Anne, animal correspondent to this podcast. Right before we get into the question section, she's there in her coat waddling amongst the pengulings um and if you could hear me over the wind chill of again sorry everyone you can't see this you're just listeners the wind chill of these arctic blasts that have frozen snot sickles out of your nose mm-hmm. can yes, you part, can you part those like walrus tusks and give us another animal fact
1: oh i'm going to do more than, i i actually sell these to kids they they fucking love them salt um, pops i've heard salt of salt lips, pops right yeah yeah Anyways, down here in the Antarctic, I got a couple of final facts to give to y'all about two more animal powers that Buddy uses in this book. One of them is when he is fighting, um, I believe it's the, I think they called it the bug, the big evil suit. And he needs time. He's like, I need time to slow down for a second. Smaller animals experience time differently. Let's do that. And I'm like, that sounds like some made up bullshit. That sounds like I heard this on the, I heard this from my cousin Frank one time. And he said, because he's also the guy that said that roaches are invincible, which they are not, by the way. That's also a lie. Um, So that's not a thing. Turns out some um, studies show that the higher an animal's metabolism, the faster they experience time or the slower they experience time because it lets them react to things faster.
0: It feels real to me because flies have been juking me my entire life. Like (laughs) I have never successfully swatted a fly without a fly swatter because Mm -hmm. they're just like, bitch. And so when I read that, I was like, absolutely true.
1: Yep. It's because they're so much smaller, Their metabolisms are so much higher that they can afford to lend energy to that to those reactions, to those receptions. For, like, a fly where it's like, I have a week to live, it makes sense to put all its energy, I'm going to bet all of it on keep me alive, let me react to things like a fucking ninja. Whereas a blue whale isn't going to have that same reaction time because it's like, I'm 100 feet long, I don't really give a shit if a fly swatter is coming at me, let it hit me, who gives a shit? I need to stay alive for longer. So that's the scientific explanation they gave me for why that happens, which is really, really interesting. It also means, good to know, your dog probably definitely feels like it's living a full life.
0: Oh, what a lovely so, little guy.
1: Lovely little guy actually feels like he is living dog years. So take that in stride. Um, and the final one is when Buddy uses the powers of an electric eel to knock the bug on its ass. And that's actually pretty um, accurate because electric eels have been um, registered um, delivering about 40 to 50 um, milliampers out of the water, milliamps out of the water. And that's um, equivalently 10 times as powerful as a taser. Well, shit. Yeah. They have to be making physical contact with it, but don't don't, um, get in an arm wrestling contest with an electric eel.
0: Word. I'll, I'll also, try my best.
1: Did you know electric eels aren't the only electric animals? There's also electric rays.
0: I mean, first off, the PR team on the electric eel outstanding. Yeah. Because I was unaware of any competition. Yeah. That's like Coca-Cola completely eclipsing Pepsi instead of only mostly eclipsing <laughs> Pepsi. But that's
1: it, it. It seems not. It seems unfair. Like the stingrays already had their thing. We're like we got we got danger swords at the end of our tails. But I then mean, there was right.
0: Yeah, right there in the name. Yeah, it's not called Electric Ray. It's called stingray. Ray.
1: Sting, Stay in your exactly. lane. And you have these little freaks who are like, I'm going to run around with a taser up my ass. <laughs> and they're like...
0: Much like it. your Pokemon this week that had something. A laser beam up its ass.
1: Yeah, my Floatzel. My fo- okay, listen, everyone. If you play Pokemon, I gave my Floatzel Ice Beam because I thought I need something to counter those, those grass types because they're pesky. And um, I used it for the first time. I... Burst out laughing and crying because I expected it to shoot it out of its mouth like a Godzilla thing. No, the thing turns around, and starts spinning its tail, and this little white beam starts shooting out of its ass. And it's the most awkward animation I've ever seen in my life, and I can't believe that's what they went with. So,
0: uh, listen, <sighs> all I'm saying is that is quite the revolutionary bottom surgery there for that float soul. <laughs> um, how, how does that work? They, what was it before? Listen, it had not a laser beam and now it does have a laser (laughs) beam down there. I'm not one to question Pokemon Sciences. They much, much further ahead than us. You're not
1: supposed to tell anyone that bottom surgery gives everyone laser beams down there. It's our only secret defense. It also comes with Bluetooth and
0: Bluetooth Bluetooth capabilities. So you hear like a muffled like And you open it up and it's like, we went skinny dipping in the park. So anyway, back. (laughs) I can't believe you went to that before WAP. (laughs) You're full of shit. (laughs) Last Friday night is always in my head. That makes sense. So we actually answered Mm -hmm. many of the questions through the course of our episode. So I'm I'm just going to sort of cherry pick a few that I don't think we did. If we can answer them pretty quickly. I want to be in and out of here and like six minutes yeah all right <laughs> so got this. do you feel this is from isla mendez who writes and says does animal man work as a successful pilot to the rest of grant morrison's work
1: yes a thousand percent there's so much especially in this last part that i was talking to dallas um just the other day like we get to see Limbo here and Limbo shows back up in Final Crisis and so much here sets up what Grant wants to do with Multiversity and Final Crisis and everything that happens there. They spend their entire career talking about how comics are fun and making comics fun again and going into the craziest aspects of it and just saying we can do anything in comics, so why don't we?
0: I like that. I mm-hmm. agree wholehearted. This feels like a palatable version of Final Crisis. <laughs> uh, yeah, frankly, um, Oswald writes in and asks, "What are your thoughts on James Highwater and his role in the story?"
1: Um, I would it be bad if I said mostly forgettable?
0: Yes. Um. So anyway, <laughs> I think James is really interesting as the character who feels these pullings on the fact that he is fictional but is a minor character. So he's not Mm -hmm. given the page space to have these big revelations that Buddy does. And he acknowledges that he's like, I feel like I just showed up here. I feel like, like I only exist when I'm talking to Buddy and I can feel that. And that is a very interesting character to talk about and to have somewhere. Mm -hmm.
1: It's surprising how, how like, okay. He was with that. He's like, this is okay. Pretty chill. I guess not bad. (laughs)
0: I feel like if I found something out like that, I'd be like, at least I don't have to wonder <laughs> you know. like there's no existential dread. Cause I just know
1: it's like, wow. I only exist when I show up on the show with Dallas and Lexi. That's kind of weird, but you know what? I dig it. <laughs> I'm not paying taxes when I'm on the show. So that's a thing.
0: I only exist when I'm clout tweeting. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we have a final general question from Joe. It says, what are your favorite prose books you've ever read? And are you reading any in this particular moment? Ever
1: is such a big word. Um, (laughs) I know I'm a big fan of The Green Mile and um, The Stand by Stephen King. Um, One that I just read that is going down as one of my all-time favorites is um, This Is How We Lose the Time War which is this really, really cool novel written by two authors who each pen a different character fighting for two different sides of a time war. And if you like really, really intense sci-fi, like really high concept stuff, this is the book for you because it's two time agents talking from the most imaginative and beautiful places across all of time and space, writing these letters to each other, first tauntingly and then like spicy, like um, flirting. And then eventually full out bleeding heart love letters to each other. And it's really beautiful and interesting. Definitely, definitely read it. And, you know, anything by N.K. Jemisin, The City We Became, so fucking perfect. And um, about right to have now. A sequel.
0: Do what? The City We Became is about to have a sequel this year.
1: Yes, I'm so ready for it. It's. I think it's a two for, I think it's one, two, and then it's done. Yeah. So, so. very excited for that. I'm currently reading through Gideon the Ninth, which is really fun. Um, also, if you haven't checked out Jay Kristoff, you should. They um, he got to write his first DC comic, I think, not too long ago. Is one of those short stories in the um, what's the Tom Taylor um Middle Earth or <laughs> Game of Thrones oh, book? These uh, are.
0: Knights of Steel.
1: Knights of Steel. Um, that had a one-off recently that he wrote a story for. I haven't gotten to read it yet, but he wrote the um storm dancer series which is about this steampunk version of the future where this girl befriends the last surviving griffin and it's really really cool
0: i dig that yeah uh right now i am reading luda by grant morrison i'm really enjoying it i also am reading a clash of swords which is the third uh, song of ice and fire book And then I have plans to start Stephen King's fairy tale. Once I finish. I've heard such good things. I really liked the description from the dust jacket. So I picked it Mm up and it's going to be my second Stephen King book ever. Um, (laughs) But my favorite books of all time. I love Dune. I love do androids dream of electric sheep. Mm -hmm. I love the Lord of the Rings. And I love the alchemist. Those are probably oh, the four books that I love cool. the very most. I am um, I love novels. I've been an avid mm-hmm. reader my whole life. And I the I read a lot of comics recently. So it's been nice to get back into novels a little bit and pump the brakes on comics. Gosh,
1: I'm going to start reading some novels again soon. It's nice to be off painkillers and being able to read novels again, which was I, I packed a whole backpack full of novels. I'm like, I can read this at the hospital. And then my oxycordone ass is like, no, you can't. No, you won't. Keep listening to Brooklyn 99, Just get through this. I didn't yeah. say anything by Neil Gaiman. American Gods and the Ocean at the End of the Lane. Oh
0: my God. Love them both. Okay, sorry. I, I, I echo both of those. Both really great books. Mm-hmm. I read a review once where someone said American Gods was too long. I read the extended edition what? and I wish there was more. So, that they can bite me. There. Yeah, that's a good book. So I want the sequel be- though, Neil. I want the sequel. You promised a sequel in the little afterword in the extended edition that I read. Mm-hmm. And I'd like it. I want to know what it Shadow is- does in America when he goes back.
1: You should check out Anansi Boys at least. No. Fine. Never,
0: Neverwhere is my next Neil Gaiman novel.
1: Okay, that one's, it's solid.
0: Yeah, that's what I've heard.
1: Should we do the end credits? I was actually, I had one more question for you. Oh, if shit. you had any, if you had the powers of Animal Man, what animal would you pull from first? Um, A horse for mm-hmm. penis size. Great. That's yeah. that's exactly the answer I expected. Exactly the plebeian answer that a non-biologist would say. The true answer is bombadier beetle. Because bombadier beetles have these two chemicals in their rear ends that combine at the end that cause a literal explosion of hot, fiery liquid to come rushing out of their butt sides. And that is the first thing you do. If you are not launching yourself with fiery shits, you're not doing animal man right.
0: I mean, first thing, I eat dairy on a regular basis, so I'm well aware of fiery liquids <laughs> shooting out of my ass. Uh, so I, check your like, I
1: I am the human bombardier I beetle. Thank you am, very much.
0: Yes, I'm bombardier beetle man. But <laughs> if you like this show, want to hear more from us throughout the week, please go follow our Twitter account at CMX Collective, our TikTok account The Comics Collective, or you can find each of us at at Dallas underscore Comics at Ann Comics and at Lexi Liu underscore comics.
1: If you enjoyed the show and want to show your support, please go to Apple Podcasts wherever you're listening and give us a five-star review and we will read it off in the show like these lovely folks who did it this week. Um, we have one from SmoothDog65 who says, Hilarious, funny and insightful show. Love of comics is abundant. Hope they stick around. We plan to. Thank you so much, SmoothDog. I liked the oh, little
0: like morose note at the end of that one. Like Hope they make it. Uh, me too. <laughs>
1: This, one, this one's my favorite, because it just says, Anne has bad opinions, five stars. Um, some call me, and it says, this is probably my favorite comic podcast, also the only comic podcast I listen to. All of y'all are great, but Anne keeps having bad Batman-based opinions, so that actually makes it the worst comics podcast of all time. I will have you know that all my Batman opinions are correct. He is a gross man who lives in the basement, and you know what? This man will do literally anything but go to therapy. Literally anything. He will endanger the youth. He will endanger his city. He gets his dad killed again. He gets dad one killed and dad two. Um, Oh, also dad three because, you know, Flashpoint dad also died. So, you know, this man goes through parents so often. I think he wants to be Batman. I think he wants dead parents. That's, That's my Batman take is Batman couldn't, if he had his parents back, he wouldn't know what to do with himself. He would shoot them himself. If if a crisis brought back Thomas and Martha Wayne just as they were, he would pull the gun out himself and say, no more. I have to be miserable.
0: And he would shoot them both. Beautiful. And finally, feel free to email us with your questions or comments for <laughs> the show at thecomicscollective at gmail.com. Wait, wait, are
1: you not going to address that? I, I just said the Batman would shoot his own parents. Are we not going to talk about this? And
0: we will see you next week for our episode on i'm batman i can't stop (laughs) where Anne will introduce us to the the legion Legion of of superheroes
1: Superheroes. i got it just in time see we did it together and now you owe me a soda um we are reading the mark wade (laughs) legion of superheroes at least the beginning um probably up until about supergirl shows up just to get a taste for it Because this was the Legion run that got me into the Legion back when I started reading comics. So I want to see if as an adult, the spirit of teenage rebellion still holds up.
0: I'm excited to learn about the X-Men. Goodbye, everyone. (laughs) Bye.